All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Good to be with you this afternoon. Today, I think we're going to be talking about something that I believe is crucial to, um, to the final uh, events that um, we are fast uh, leading up to. And so the title of this presentation, Faster Than the Speed of Light, How Medical Missionary Work Can Encircle the Globe Quickly. One of the questions that we should ask at a Christian convention that believes in the Bible is why has Christ not come yet? And when I hear a lot of the comments, um, particularly recently, among some Christians who have not really believed in the soon coming of Christ, I have a friend of mine uh, that uh, for years I've been, I've been working on, so to speak, uh, he's someone that doesn't, uh, uh, you know, he, he believes in the Bible, does not believe in the spirit of prophecy, uh, but recently as a result of world events, he has at least stated to me that he will never say anything disparagingly about the spirit of prophecy when he sees what is happening in the world uh, with the beast and uh, with the world wondering and with what is happening. And uh, many have thought, well, it's because those events hadn't really taken place yet. That's why Christ has not come. But as you'll find out, it's actually a little deeper than that. Who is our model as Christians? It is Jesus. And what did he do? Jesus went about all the cities in villages, and what did he do? Taught in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And what else did he do? He healed all kinds of disease and every weakness and infirmity. This is the threefold ministry of Christ, teaching, preaching, and healing. And interestingly, it wasn't just his ministry. He told the 12 apostles to go and preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the first thing that he told them to do when they were to go out was, does anyone remember? The pioneer work, the first thing that was to be done, was the healing ministry. Healing the sick. Cleansing the lepers. And he said, freely have received, do what? Freely give. It is to be a giving ministry, one that helps interpret the gospel. Now, interestingly, he did not state those to the left of Peter and John are going to be involved in healing and those to the right are going to be involved in preaching. And when he sent out the 70, he didn't divide them up and say, okay, now you're going to be the ones involved in healing and now these over here are going to be involved in preaching. He sent all of the 70 to go out and to heal. He, meaning Christ, did not wish the medical missionary work to be separated from the gospel work or the gospel work separated from the medical missionary work. These are to do what? They're to blend. The medical missionary work is to be regarded as what type of work? The pioneer work. It is to be the means of breaking down prejudice. As the right arm, it is to open doors for the gospel message. And why Christ has not come, I think you'll see evidence of it as we go further. But why he hasn't is his people have not taken up 
the threefold ministry in a global way. They've taken up, in many respects, a twofold ministry, but not the threefold ministry. And he's not going to come while his people bypass the major element of what he did and what he told us to do and what he modeled. Now, many have stated that the end is here. I think it's pretty true today that there's only one Protestant church left in the world. The other churches have come together and they say the protest is over. And they're clasping hands with Rome in all sorts of different ways and trying to team up with that power. What was Protestantism? Cry? What was its stalwart doctrine? The Bible and the Bible only as the rule of faith and practice. Interestingly, I was actually talking with um, a professional the other day who was believing that the, um, what's happening in Islam has a lot to do with the closing events in Earth's history, and I was disagreeing with that fact. I, I think the Lord has utilized Islam in some ways to forward his work, believe it or not. Uh, Protestantism would have never taken hold had it not been for the diversion of Rome attacking the Islams. And uh, it's very clear, Luther, very true that Luther and the other reformers would not have ever been able to gain a foothold had the armies not been diverted. And so we don't need to look at those world events. There is a diversion that's occurring, but that diversion sometimes occurs to protect God's people. And the Bible and the Bible only, when, it, when Protestantism got out of hand, so to speak, for the Roman uh, power, and they could not contain it because it was exponentially growing, they put together their own council uh, where the Counter-Reformation began, but it was an interesting council. They stated, Protestantism is the Bible and the Bible only, and we are tradition and the Bible. And they looked at that, and they bounced it around and studied it for a while. And they said, you know, does, is Protestantism true? And they stated... In that council, their final analysis was, no, it's not the Bible, and the Bible only is our rule of faith and practice. It is Bible and tradition, and even you Protestants, although you claim the Bible and the Bible only, you don't believe it. And the example they gave was because the Protestants were still keeping Sunday. And they said, that's tradition. It's not the Bible and the Bible only. And so you claim you're Protestants, but you're not. But now and the Protestants disagreed with that. They said, no, we believe in the Bible and the Bible only, and they used the Bible in ways in which they thought to justify it. But now they're saying there is no protest. And really, we're back to the Bible and tradition, not the Bible and the Bible only. It's clear that the deadly wound has been healed. But the reason why Christ isn't coming tomorrow is the right arm of God's church is still largely withered. Here's what we're told 
will happen before he comes. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress because of the inflowing of hundreds, and how many? Thousands of what? Streams until the whole earth is covered as the what? Waters cover the sea. That's what is predicted will happen with medical missionary work. Christ's healing ministry among his people, taking it to the world before he comes. Now, some have seen that and said, well, doesn't look like it's going to happen in my generation. Things are, you know, it's taken a long time to even get this far. In regards to his healing ministry, three times in the book of Revelation we're told this that the wrong power will deceive them that dwell on the earth by means of what? Those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. So interestingly, there is going to be a healing message and even miracles on the wrong side. So if that's the case, why is this so important? Why is Christ waiting for this? When the wrong side, three times we're told they're going to be deceiving, it's going to be their final deception final way of deceiving is going to be by means of a healing ministry, miraculous works of healing. Here's what we're told about this, the way in which Christ's work was to preach the word and to relieve suffering by miraculous works of healing. But I am instructed that we cannot now work in this way, for Satan will exercise his power by what? Working miracles, God's servants today could not work by means of miracles because spurious works of healing claiming to be divine will be wrought. For this reason, the Lord has marked out a way in which his people are to carry forward a work of physical healing combined with the teaching of the word. Sanitariums are to be established, and with these institutions are to be connected workers who will carry forward what type of medical missionary work? Genuine medical missionary work. And, of course, one of those things of genuine medical missionary work is when the gospel and healing go hand in hand and they come together. So we are to do the healing ministry and sanitariums are to be established. Interestingly, Weimar Institute is starting a nursing program starting up next week, as a matter of fact. And we're told in this section called Nurses as what? Evangelists. Christ, the great medical missionary, is our example. He healed the sick, and what else did he do? Preach the gospel. In his service, healing and teaching were what? Linked closely together. Today, they are what? Not to be separated. The nurses who are trained in our institutions are to be fitted up to go out as medical, missionary, what? Evangelists, uniting the ministry of the word with that of physical healing. If you're there tonight, you're going to hear some of the miracles of how our program got started because we were very overt to the state of California that we were going to be training our nurses as evangelists. That this was going to be a very different nursing program. They were going to come out as health educators and as healers in the spiritual sense as well. 
and uh, the spiritual part of the program is a primary aspect of the new nursing program at Weimar. How did that get through the state of California? You'll have to come tonight to, uh, to find out. Natural means, we're told, used in accordance with God's will, bring about what? Supernatural results. We ask for a miracle, and the Lord directs the mind to some simple remedy. We ask to be kept from the pestilence that walketh in darkness, that is stalking with such power through the world. We are then to cooperate with God. And so there are natural means that are used. There's teaching. There's physical healing taking place. And the gospel is going with it. This is, she wrote this to a pastor who was seen as fairly successful in his day. Had you carried the work forward in the lines in which God intended you to, had you done what? Medical missionary work, trying to heal soul and what else? And body, you would have seen hundreds and thousands coming into the truth. And so a pastoral training program that doesn't carry with it a strong emphasis of medical missionary work is going to perpetuate the twofold ministry and delay the coming of Christ. It's one of the reasons why we have a theology program at Weimar, uh, because our theology program has medical missionary work as a central component uh, of that, and uh, many of our pastors are carrying that forward. Then the last work she gave, last word she gave to the general conference. In person, I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in what? Ministerial lines, but what? Medical missionary work. She looked down to the time when the preaching of truth would be outlawed and banned, but yet soul winning would not be ceasing as a result. There would be 11th hour souls, one to the gospel, through how? Medical missionary work. One of the things that we've done with our little boy, Justin, you know, he's the last one at home. And if you see him at our booth, you'll find out he's not as little as he used to be. He's almost as tall as Erica, shooting up there. But uh, for worships, we would read him out of the biography of Ellen White. Actually, it's an exciting thing to do with kids. They love that biography. I mean, it is better than Hollywood drama. Uh, and uh, at the end of a page or two, he would beg, please, more, more, no. He wanted to continue reading, and we'd have to keep it short and go forward. But there's a lot of church history in that and a lot of excitement in those uh, books. And uh, they're actually applicable um, today in so many ways. But, you know, the last years of her life, she spent primarily in Elmshaven, California, not too far away from Weimar. And in reading those biographies, plus the last part of the Australian years, so much of the last 20 years of her life were spent in trying to get the brethren to buy into medical missionary work. She was urgent about it. She was telling them, the Lord told me, this is where Loma Linda is to start. We need to get the funds for it. Were the brethren for it? They were not for it. They resisted every step of the way, it seemed. And under tremendous 
encouragement from Ellen White. A few of them, who were thought to be the aberrant ones, actually went out of limb and started Loma Linda. And it had some significant problems. In fact, a lot of people are not aware that when it was having such deep financial trouble, it was Sutherland's self-supporting Madison that sent $60,000, at that time a huge amount, to Loma Linda to keep it going. <laughs> uh, and uh, medical missionary work was something that she was trying to get the brethren to buy into. At the time of her death, they largely had still not bought in. Or if some did, it didn't last long in the way of genuine medical missionary work, trying to heal body and soul. They then would branch out to just healing the body, and it would become unethical to talk about anything with the soul, it seemed, or at least have physicians and nurses do it. If you need that, then we'll have to call a chaplain. What religion are you? We'll get the chaplain of your your religion of choice, and we'll get them to talk, but we're not going to talk about anything related to Christ and the gospel. And that's not genuine medical missionary work. Or if they stayed, some of them actually, a few of them actually stayed with genuine medical missionary work, but they often became blinded in the fallacy that we should stay away from science or the scientific method. And thus, a lot of strange things sometimes would be occurring that were not scientific in some of these healing centers that were spreading the gospel. It's true that miracles are occurring at many of these centers, but unfortunately, many times they're not being documented. But Ellen White, her message the last 20 years was trust the Lord and go forward with medical missionary work, his healing ministry that cannot be bypassed and expect Christ to come with only a twofold ministry. The health work. Here's what she says about it. It should stand forth with what? Scientific ability, with moral and spiritual power, and as a faithful sentinel of reform in all its bearings. And all who act a part in it should be what? Reformers. And so she was not afraid of science. In fact, she said it should stand forth with scientific ability, with moral and spiritual power. By the way, where did we get that scientific method from? Do you know what the first perspective epidemiological trial was done in human history? It's from the Bible, the book of Daniel. Daniel proposed a study, and there was a comparison group. <laughs> and the results were significant. And interestingly, the American Medical Association admitted, has ad, it admitted as such. That's where the first prospective epidemiological trial was ever performed in human history. Science has its roots in the Bible. In fact, had it not been for the Bible and religion, we wouldn't have science today. And a lot of these people think it's, well, you know, my source of authority is science. And they fail to recognize how science even got started. Uh, and, uh, but it's not something we should be afraid of. Research in science is actually a big key for exponential and financially sustainable success in medical missionary work. 
just going to go into, we could go into several areas today. I thought about going into the area of cancer, but a few years ago I gave a talk at ASI on cancer. I think it's still out there on the internet called, called, called um, eliminating the C word. But uh, since there's been some research done on this recently, I thought I'd talk a little bit about this, but it could be a model for other aspects of medical missionary work. A few weeks ago, a few months ago, November, 2014, the journal Nature. Nature is in the five most prestigious journals in the world, or at least it's, it's claim to that. And Nature doesn't just do medical studies. They do a lot of different studies, and uh, they're a, um, one of those top peer-reviewed journals. They dedicated an entire issue to the problem of depression. And they said upwards of 400 million people currently suffer from depression worldwide. 6% of the population. They state there isn't a country in the world that is not touched by this disease, and they go into all of the incidences and problems. Almost one million suicides each year. One million. Could you imagine if we had that many people dying from airplanes? What an outcry there would be but yet a million people in this world taking their own life, not much is said about it. There are suicides that I'm sure occurred in Spokane today, but you won't hear about them on the evening news or even read about them in the newspaper tomorrow. It's death under the radar screen. 76 million years of work loss, more than neck, spine, lung, and vascular disease. It's now the number one cause of disability in the world. It's the ninth leading cause of death. More deaths occur from depression than from lung cancer throughout this world. And here's what nature states. You're more likely to be cured from cancer than depression if you have depression. They even state that we made, we've made some advances in cancer treatment, significant advances. If you have cancer, you, it's not necessarily a death sentence anymore. But they state, those advances have not been made in depression. Here's a quote from the journal. Five decades of work on antidepressant drugs have not made them more likely to lift people out of depression. Medications and psychotherapies help some people with the disease, but do what? Fail many others. In a study conducted in real clinical settings, a common antidepressant produced a response in just under half of the participants and achieved full remission and only what? 28%. Failures to improve efficacy reflect continued ignorance of the molecular mechanisms of depression. And they make a cry for real research to be done on making advances in treating this disease. Interestingly, within days that this issue came out in Nature magazine, we published our first peer-reviewed literature called The Depression Hit Hypothesis, Identifying Depression and Its Causes. It was published in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine in, on November 2014. And it goes through the 10 different categories or hits that can cause depression and that in most people they're going to need four different categories before it comes about. By the way, you can download this for free. We had to pay extra, I don't know how many, several thousand dollars so that anyone could download the entire article for free on the internet. Uh, but 
there it is. You can see the graph. It's about four. Some people are resilient enough that they need five causes before they have depression, and then some brains are more sensitive and three causes are there, but for most it's right in that three to five category, four being right there. And within um, weeks, we started publishing other things. This was just the next month. Eight-week depression and anxiety recovery program decreases usage of benzodiazepines. These are the drugs that are very difficult to get off of, your Xanax, lorazepam. They're increasing significantly their usage in society and their frontal lobe suppressants, their short-term gains and long-term problems. They can make you feel like you don't have a worry in the world after you pop a Xanax, but frontal lobe suppression is occurring and your worries are doomed to increase. And then if you try to get off them, even though you might not have any worries, you're going to think you have tenfold the amount of worries that you had before you started it because of the dependence and you also start getting rid of a chemical called GABA in your brain which helps you with stress control. And for years the medical world has decried these drugs as being so tough to get off of. Well this eight-week program of over 4,000 participants as you can see there, 4,271 participants where were these eight-week programs done primarily? Anyone want to guess? They were done in local Seventh-day Adventist churches. Some of them were done in Baptist churches, and some in Catholic, and some in Mormon, and some in community centers, and some in doctor's offices. But the primary avenue was a local Seventh-day Adventist church putting on this program. And how we were able to do this study is we have these questions about benzo usage. Why did we have those questions? Because we were trying to find out if you had a frontal lobe hit or not. <laughs> but eight weeks later, you take it again. And so we just looked at the analysis, and we found out that those who were using benzos more than twice a month in the program, over 300, and at the end of the program, this is the amount that we're using it over twice a month. So not only was their depression and anxiety improving, but their benzo usage was dramatically improving. In fact, so much so that Medscape picked this up. This is a, um, a medical news organization. Novel program reduces depressive symptoms and benzo use. This is Dr. Eddie Ramirez. Some of you know him. He works with us, but he is the one who was there at the presentation in Florida. This was the, uh, present, presented at the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry. And uh, his name is also on the study because he, uh, he was the one who did the analysis and statistics of the uh, data. But um, quite a, um, in fact, it, it produced a lot of interest because people are wondering how to get off these drugs. And just by going to an Adventist church, and spending two hours a week, once a week for eight weeks, and learning how the brain works and putting that into practice can help you get off of those drugs and also help your depression um, significantly. So several of these next studies are part of these 4,271. You can see most of them were from the U.S., but quite a few from Canada, Australia, uh, some from other countries, New Zealand, um, Norway, um, as well, uh, several uh, different continents involved. And out of those, 
the average person coming, not everyone came for depression because remember this is a mental health education program, it's not a therapeutic program per se, but we're doing the DSM-5 criteria, these are psychiatric criteria for identifying it, and they're taking these tests before and after to see where they're at, but the average individual comes in with moderate, if we just did those with depression it would be significantly higher than that even, and the average individual is leaving with no depression. Average anxiety person coming in with mild, leaving with no anxiety. And this is what surprised us. Response rate among those who qualified for depression in the program, a response rate is not just an improvement. It has to be a, an improvement of over 50% or more. 85% response rate just by going through a mental health education program at a local church. That supersedes anything that has ever been studied for depression. It's better than any medicines out there. It's better than any single therapy or combination therapy of anything that's been utilized for depression. And then what about those that are severe? 95% experience at least some improvement. So you think the severe are beyond help? No. They actually get a significant amount of help. There were 983 of those that were severe after eight weeks. And you can see 23% actually got from severe down to no depression at all in eight weeks just by attending that program. That's, again, far better than you'll find for any medication or combination of medicines or any behavioral medicine uh, clinic. And, uh, and then 21% mild, 42% improve a category. And, of course, you can track those improvements simply by, what do you think you can predict them by? By how much lifestyle changes they implemented during the program. You know, we can't force them on these lifestyle changes but it's, uh, we're educating them and we're coaching them and encouraging them, but the more lifestyle changes they make, the better. Now this surprised us even more. Which is more difficult to treat, anxiety or depression? Anxiety is known to be tougher to treat. In fact, it requires double the dose of medicines. They still use antidepressants to treat anxiety, but they have to use huge doses to try to get a response. And in this eight-week program, the response rate for anxiety, 87%. Even a little better than depression. Depression was 85%. Out of those with anxiety, 600, well, you'll find the number at the next slide. I think 683 or so had severe anxiety. 93% improved in the program. Here it is, 697 with severe anxiety. And you can see some went from severe to no anxiety in just eight weeks, 36% decreased down to mild, 26% um, improved one category. Then this was published just uh, two months ago in the, in the journal Gastroenterology. It was presented at the DDW conference in Chicago at first, and then gastroenterology picked up. Out of those 4,000 and some individuals, one of the questions we asked was about hepatitis C. We were looking for a medical hit. That's another category of hit. And it turns out when you have a chronic viral infection, it can adversely affect the brain. But the problem with hepatitis C is if you have depression 
and hepatitis C, you couldn't undergo the standard treatment because the standard treatment could make you more depressed and could even make you suicidal. So there's been descriptions of people on hepatitis C treatment getting better from their hepatitis C but committing suicide. Kind of a hard risk to, to, to evaluate. And so many gastroenterologists, fearful of that risk, would not put patients with depression on hepatitis C treatment for wise reasons. And what they found out is, out of the individuals who had hepatitis C who went through the program worldwide, what percent improved? 97% improvement. And uh, uh, this was, um, of course, good news because now people can get treated for their depression and then get treated for their hepatitis C. There are studies that have been completed that have been accepted for publication, but have not yet occurred. Eight-week depression program improves depression with lifestyle changes and exercise therapy. This is going to be published in a major exercise journal. This came from a question that we asked, also looking at a frontal lobe hit. There's evidence, in fact, if you want to hear more evidence, um, you'd probably want to get our, um, our um, scientific presentation that we gave at an emotional intelligence summit last February called Sex and Mental Health. But there's a lot of um, different things that we discussed in there. But one of the things um, that uh, is a frontal lobe suppressant is when you're having sexual activity out of marriage relationship. So we asked the question. There were 75 questions, and that was one of them. Are you having sex? outside of marriage. Here's what our data showed. Present study assesses the relationship between sexual activity outside marriage and depression before and after an educational facilitator-based depression program. The conclusion of the study, we won't go through all the statistics and analysis, sexual relationships outside of marriage are related to higher depression levels and severity even before the eight-week program begins. So if they come in having sexual activity outside of marriage, they're more likely to be severely depressed. And the conclusion is the program seems to benefit both groups, whether you have had sex outside of marriage or not, but more improvement is seen in those, what? Not involved in extramarital situations. And uh, this is going to be published by a peer-reviewed um, sexual journal. Then another study that has just been accepted, sexual abuse increases the risk of addictive behaviors. We were looking for the developmental hit in this question. Those that have suffered sexual trauma growing up to, to know, of course, that's a developmental hit, one that can not be enough to cause depression in and of itself, but again, four different hit categories can cause this. And it wasn't surprising to find this. Having a history of severe sexual abuse does increase the risk of various types of addictive habits. We were asking questions about those, too, to see if they had an addiction hit. And so we saw that association there very strongly, that if there's a history of sex abuse, you're more likely to be addicted to something that is harmful. The eight-week depression recovery program was also effective in improving depression, even among those with a history of sexual abuse, however and it showed that they're also likely to get off their addictions during the eight-week program. Then what about diet? Eight-week mental health program increases folate intake. One of the questions people, where people asked are about foods related to folate intake. And now, to, now notice these future, these studies that haven't been published yet, you notice the numbers are bigger. 
That's because there's been that many more people that have gone through since the, since the data that we had um, a year ago uh, to present. 5,221 participants, 30% male, finished the program from 2007 to 2015 in multiple sites. At baseline, 40% or 2,000, over 2,000 of them, of all participants reported poor folate intake and 11% occasional folate intake. What were the conclusions? We could have gone through all the data and statistics, but here's the conclusion. There seems to be a clear pattern between folate intake and depression, anxiety, and EQ scores even before the program started. In other words, the lower the folate level, the higher the depression you're is, the higher your anxiety, and the lower your emotional intelligence. Those that increased their folate had better improvement in all their markers afterwards. The eight-week program is an effective tool to improve folate intake among participants. This was an interesting one. Effective eight-week program on individuals exposed to fish environmental toxins. What were we looking for in this question? We were looking for mercury exposure, and we know mercury can be related, so we asked questions about fish intake. How often? Because fish is the number one supply of mercury in the dietary um, system. And so uh, here's what we've, uh, this is the beginning of the study. Mercury is a dangerous environmental toxin. No level can be safe for humans. Some research suggests that all fish have methylmercury. Other toxic compounds such as dioxins and polychlorinated biphenyls are also found in fish and fish oils. Accumulation of mercury could increase the risk for depression. Seafood intake has been associated with depression and suicide. Fish consumption has been proposed as one of the causes of depression. This study assesses the impact of intensive lifestyle interventions, which is the eight-week depression and anxiety recovery program, and individuals exposed to these toxins via fish consumption. Data now, you can see it's going up even further from how many. This was the latest. 5,621 participants that finished the program was used. Fish eaters tend to have higher levels of depression at baseline, and their condition tend to be what? More severe. The eight-week program improves depression for both groups, fish eaters as well as non-fish eaters. The non-fish eater group improves, however, what, how? The most. And now this uh, study on heart failure and stroke. We were looking for a medical hit. 224 people have had heart failure and stroke that have attended the program. Eight-week depression recovery program was safe and was associated with at least some degree of improvement in the vast majority of patients with heart disease and stroke, a group that is not thought to be very, um, uh, that they've been thought to be treatment resistant primarily, the heart failure and stroke patients, but 90% improved in the program. What about the residential program, which is our therapeutic program? Of course, our results are much better. Why is that the case? First of all, it's a therapeutic program meaning that there's a physician evaluation and treatment. There's extensive blood and serum analysis. There's licensed CBT therapy. And by the way, just let me just state this parenthetically. We see this all over the country, people seeing therapists and counselors. Don't go to a therapist and counselor until you've asked this question. What is your primary mode of therapy? If you ask them if they do CBT, do you do CBT? Almost 100% of them will say yes, because they've gone to a weekend course. But they don't know CBT, and they don't utilize it in their therapeutic sessions. 
So that's why you leave the open-ended question. What is your primary mode of therapy? CBT is the one that has been shown in randomized controlled trials to be far superior to other forms of therapy. And by the way, other forms of therapy have never really been shown to be better than taking a placebo pill. So we have licensed CBT therapy going on. We also have a spiritual counselor, a vital part. We're awaiting an IRB from the University of Arizona to publish these incredible results. Um, we have published some results without the IRB because we don't want to publish. The IRB, the, the results are so dramatic. I don't want to tell you what they are. But the results are so dramatic that they will not be believed. And that's one of the reasons why we want to go through um, the IRB uh, analysis. That's an institutional uh, research um, a board that has to go through the ethics and all that. And one of the things they're looking at is since this is retrospective data, um, are they going to <coughs> allow this? We have a question where they can opt out of the study, and so we think it's going to go through. But they're looking at it. And if not, <coughs> it turns out that the results are so dramatic we can redo the study, and it only takes two programs to produce dramatic statistical significance. So uh, it wouldn't take long if they want us to redesign the study to get it um, uh, through. But we took a look at patients with hemoglobin A1C levels that are high. This is people with metabolic syndrome. And since we're doing lab work on them, now we can do this association. And we found out that consumption of energy-rich nutrients and hemoglobin A1C levels among depressed individuals um, despite the fact that they had metabolic syndrome, their Beck depression inventory, that's what BDI stands for, averages up there, it's severe depression that comes to the residential program or right at the level of severity, and they're leaving with no depression in just 10 days. And of course, the reason why this is going to be hard to believe is because uh, psychiatrists and mental health professionals around the country have been taught and I was taught this way as well. In fact, that's why we didn't do 10-day programs to start out with, that nothing will improve major depression that's severe in seven or 10 days. It's gonna take weeks or months before you get a therapeutic response. And uh, what's happening is their depression is being eliminated in record time and is also being sustained, in fact, even improved after that. We also are publishing this study on alprazolam and lorazepam weaning in the 10-day residential program. And the conclusion is a 10-day program, even though its primary focus is not to decrease pharmacological agents, is a very useful way to decrease short-acting benzos while improving mental health at the same time, which is not thought to have those two things that are possible. So since the residential program is far superior, does it mean that we should not do the church-based or the community-based program? Absolutely not. Why not? If they get better with just mental health education and the process get transformed by the gospel, it saves them a lot of money and the results will be virtually the same. And so why not put them through the church-based program first? The church-based program is still better than any other program or any other therapy out there. It really, now that this data has been released, it really questions the 
validity of using first-line agents such as pharmacological agents when you can have a cheaper agent, doesn't cost much to go through this eight-week program, that's superior without the side effects. And so there's still a need for church-based and community-based programs. In fact, Ellen White, going back to what she taught about medical missionary work, she basically told us that every church should be a mini-sanitarium. You know, we ought to be putting on cooking schools. We ought to be putting on health education programs. We ought to be putting on diabetes reversal programs and, and uh, depression and anxiety recovery programs as part of what we do in local churches. And she says it will interpret the gospel to them. It will get them close to the people, and it will allow them to be put in a place where they can be transformed by the gospel. Really, the residential program is for those who can't seem to change without professional help. In other words, some people that have come to our residential program would never go to a church-based program. They wouldn't go even to a community-based program. They're so depressed, they won't even get out of their house. They can't even go down to a local restaurant. Or if their family drags them out of there, their whole thought is, I need to get back home, I need to get back home, I'm not going out. That's how severe they are when they come to our program. So it's for people that either won't go to the, to the eight-week program or people who went to the eight-week program but just couldn't seem to put any of the changes into practice or very many of them to make a difference. And then those are prime candidates because we find out, find out if they go through your eight-week program first and then come to our program, their results are even better than if they didn't go through your eight-week program first because they already understand some of the tools. We don't have to be spending as much time with education, and we can spend more time with implementation. So once the big studies are published, within months, its own CBT, CPT code will be released. A CPT code is a code that doctors charge for certain procedures. If you have heart surgery, there's one CPT code, boom. And insurance companies reimburse that set amount, or Medicare reimburses that set amount. So uh, once this IRB goes forward and these studies are done, and if they want us to redo the studies, it may take another couple of programs, but eventually a CPT code will be released, hopefully sooner rather than later, and that CPT code will be all-encompassing. In other words, they have to do the entire program to qualify for the CPT. And by the way, interestingly, meditation will not be allowed because our results did not involve any meditation or hypnosis. It's very clear that that would have inhibited the results. And by the way, if you want to know about that, come to our next EQ Summit in Weimar where we talk about the science of meditation and hypnosis. There will be a, a neuroscientist. Uh, the title of his talks are Meditation, the Good, Bad, and the Ugly. And uh, uh, there's been a lot of biased science on that meditation side of things because they're actually not allowed to look for complications or even publish them. But if they did, it would be alarming, and you'll find out about that. So this is a code that insurance companies will pay for. Why will they pay for something like this? Right now, if meds and counselings do not work, the disease is very expensive. And the last resort, right now if drugs and counseling don't work, the last resort that they'll pay for is called ECT, shockwave treatments. Guess how much those shockwave treatments cost? 
$20,000. In fact, in our last program, one of our dramatic improvements occurred in a woman who had been in a behavioral medicine center. Do you remember, Erica? Was it four times or seven times? I think it was seven times. She had attempted suicide four different times, and she had gone through 20 ECT treatments. And her psychiatric community had given up on her and said, sorry, we have nothing more to offer you. Don't come back to us. And then she found out about our program. And yes, our program helped even her. In fact, she was thrilled with what was happening by day six or seven of her brain chemistry. So this will produce some financial sustainability. There's no doubt that this therapeutic 10-day program is far superior in results to anything that's been tried for depression or anxiety. And it's cheaper than chronic mental health care, by far. It's cheaper and much more effective than ECT. And once the CPT code is approved and insurances are on board, we will need a center outside of every major city in the world. Why are we going to need that? Because it's now reimbursable. So what's going to be our problem then? We think, well, this is the holdup. We've got the CPT code. The insurance companies are reimbursing. We now need to have a, a center outside of every major city, first in the U.S. And when the U.S. does it, the world will do it too. They have insurances, you know, even in Africa and other places, some places. Uh, there's only a few places that don't have things like medical insurance uh, in the world. So what will be the limitations then? Appropriately trained people to start and staff these institutions. Not everyone can, uh, you know, this isn't uh, something where we can just take someone from a church and off the street and have them be a licensed therapist or someone to do these sort of things. And so do you see why we need training centers like Weimar? Do you see why Ellen White said these training institutions doing genuine medical missionary work would need to be initiated throughout the world as long as time should last? And because of the church-based ministry, which should be our first line, she also said this, every gospel worker should feel that the giving of instruction and the principles of healthful living is part of his appointed work. Of this work, there is what? Great need, and the world is what? Open for it. What would be another translation for every gospel worker? That's right. Every church member. Every church member should feel that the giving of instruction and the principles of healthful living is part of his appointed work. Then she goes on to say, all gospel workers, again, should know how to give the what? Simple treatments that do so much to relieve pain and remove disease. So why medical missionary work? I've given you a little bit of a glimpse why, but it's actually deeper than this. No matter what need or disease, medical missionary work involves some aspect of lifestyle change. And at least some, if not all, of that change goes against human nature. You know, we've known for a long time, for instance, how to eliminate coronary artery disease. I remember in 1991 attending a conference. 
the first international conference on the elimination of coronary artery disease. It was an exciting conference. Researchers from all over the world. And by the way, in the middle of that conference, we got to know a lot of the other people that were there, and Erica and I were there. And I said, Erica, there's not a single Seventh-day Adventist here. I'm the only one that's here at this big conference on the elimination of coronary disease. I wasn't necessarily disappointed in that because I was thinking, you know, and of course I wasn't even associated with Weimar, but I knew about the Weimar New Start program. And I thought, these aren't people from Weimar stating this. These are genuinely well-respected researchers from all over the world converging on telling us how we can eliminate coronary artery disease. And I thought, how different my practice is going to be as an internal medicine doctor in 20 years where heart disease is not even in the top 10 causes of death. What's the number one cause of death in this country today? And that was 91, so that was almost, uh, what, almost 25 years ago. And it's still the number one cause of heart disease. Is it because all those researchers were wrong? No, we've actually, the last 25 years, have demonstrated that they're more right than we even thought they were in 1991. We know how to eliminate this disease through nutrition and lifestyle. So why is it the number one cause of death? It's actually due to a mental health issue. And that mental health issue is called lack of self-control. To make a change that goes against human nature requires what? The power of God. And that's what was missing in that 1991 conference. There was no presenters telling us how to take a person with low self-control and turn them into a person of high self-control. In fact, I should state this, the number one most quoted researcher in the world today does his research on self-control. His name is William Baumeister out of Stanford. He has a book called Willpower, Discovering the Greatest Human Strength. But basically, these researchers on self-control primarily state we know some things about how to get it, but we're still very lacking. Self-control is our ability to keep ourselves from acting on our behavioral emotional impulses. And according to a recent review by Baumeister, self-control failure is central to nearly all the personal and social problems that currently plague citizens of the modern developed world. Lack of self-control is the cause of heart disease when we know how to prevent it. Diabetes, is it going up or going down in this country? It's going up dramatically. What's the primary issue? We know how to prevent it. We even know how to reverse it. Self-control, sexually transmitted diseases, in some countries still the number one cause of death. The issue is lack of self-control, stroke, high blood pressure, alcohol, those things that can cause it. Alcoholism itself is lack of self-control. Murder, lack of self-control. Rape, is it going down or up in this world? It's going up. Lack of self-control, depression when we know the principles of mentally healthful living and we're not incorporating it. Lack of self-control. Harvard says 80% of cancers could be prevented if we would put into practice lifestyle principles. Unwanted pregnancy, lack of self-control. Adultery and divorce, often due to lack of self-control. Even unemployment can be due to lack of self-control. Financial failure, 
due to lack of self-control. Our country is undergoing financial failure due to corporate lack of self-control. Relationship problems, often due to lack of self-control and all of these addictions that have increased, like technology addiction. How do you know whether someone has it or not? That's when you find them in a very engaging environment and they're texting someone far less engaging who might be in the same room across the way. And studies show the mental health problems associated with, with that are about as bad as alcoholism. It decreases creativity, it decreases emotional intelligence. That's one of the reasons why our therapeutic works so well. I'll just give you a secret, I don't want you to tell it outside of this room because you might prevent someone from being helped. But when someone comes to our therapeutic program, we take away their iPads and their smartphones. <laughs> and some of them get upset at us at first. They'll say, I came here from anxiety and you've just quadrupled my anxiety level without this. <laughs> but at the end of 10 days, they find out their anxiety is better their depression is better, they're feeling better than they often they've felt their whole life, and they didn't have to use a smartphone once to get there. What is the word for addictions in the Bible? Addictions are dramatically increasing in our society. What is the word for it? Anyone know? There is no word addiction in the Bible. What is an addiction? Well, you can get an idea from this definition what we might be talking about. You've been taught it's unhealthy, but you do it anyway, and soon you're what? You're hooked. The word for addiction in the Bible is rebellion. It's a step above sin, or a step below it, I guess you could say. It's not just sin. It talks about sin, and then it talks about rebellion. We can kind of be tempted or fall into sin, and it's not necessarily an addiction when we do it. But when we know something is unhealthy, and we do it anyway, we're soon hooked. And by the way, this is one of the issues of our own churches as well. Recently, I was asked to talk at the North American Division Summit. First time, they had put all the pastors of the entire division together in Austin, Texas, right before the General Conference. And I was to talk about emotional intelligence. But just last year, there's been a study, an interview, um, and a poll that was done of pastors in the North American Division. And we find out in that poll that over two-thirds of them are doing unhealthy things regularly that they know are unhealthy, and they're doing them anyway. And, of course, the rates of depression and anxiety are high in our pastorate. And uh, it's, um, it's a situation that doesn't have to be, necessarily. But when we have those individuals as our spiritual leaders, you think it might affect the flock. It's one of the reasons why we need to have, in fact, the, the head of the NAD Pastors Association at the end... Um, of my little presentation mentioned, would you like to have a program just for pastors at Weimar? And they all raised their hand. They'd like, a, they'd like a solution to this. They would like a solution. Rebellion is the sin of what? Witchcraft. 
and stubbornness as as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected thee. Wow, pretty strong statement. Now, by rejecting, it doesn't mean that they're forever lost. It just means that he's not intervening to save them from the consequences of their rebellious behavior. Sometimes he'll do that, actually. He'll actually step in and save us from the results of our sin. If you remember, that happened to Abraham. Abraham sinned. And he thought there was a good reason for his sin. He knew his wife was very beautiful, and he knew that when the worldly king saw her, he was going to be a dead man. He was right that she was beautiful to the king because when he did see her, he put her in line to be seen by him. But when the king realized it was Abraham's wife, Abraham could have lost his life for lying to the king. And the Lord intervened. The king was angry at Abraham, but instead of killing him, he said, get out of my country, I can't trust you anymore. And he left the country. So there's times when the Lord actually spares us the results of our own sin. But when it comes to rebellion, we're told that he's not going to do that. He's going to let natural consequences take their place. Here's an interesting quote from Ellen White. This was speaking of nurses again. They can pray with and for the helpless ones who have not strength of will to control the appetites that passion is degraded. Isn't that an interesting statement? There are some that even though they're taught, they're not going to have self-control. They're helpless. They have not the strength of will to control the appetites that passion is degraded. They can bring a ray of hope into the lives of the defeated and disheartened, talking about these nurses. Their unselfish love manifested in acts of disinterested kindness will make it easier for these suffering ones to believe in what? The love of Christ. This is a section called The Missionary Nurse in Testimonies, Volume 9, page 171 and 172. Paul talks about this issue. When we know what to do that's healthy for us and we're not doing it, and then we do unhealthy things that we know are harmful, he ends that discourse by saying what? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Some have inaccurately stated that the Christian that, Rome, that Paul is talking about is just the plot of an ordinary Christian. No. That's not what an ordinary Christian's life should be like at all. A wretched life? That's what we're being called to? Absolutely not. Do you know there's one other place in Scripture where wretched is mentioned? It's the last message to the church. It says, because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are what? Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And by the way, why are you also naked? You actually don't have the righteousness of Christ. That shouldn't be an ordinary Christian. An ordinary Christian should be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and not be wretched. So what's the secret to avoiding this wretchedness? Dr. Baumeister tells us part of the secret is bright lines. He says people need bright lines. They really help with self-control. Zero tolerance is a bright line. Total abstinence with no exceptions anytime. 
If you believe that the rule is sacred, a commandment from God, the unquestionable law of a higher power, then it becomes a what? A specially bright line. So what helps with self-control? The commandments actually help. In fact, Baumeister did an interesting study. He took a group of atheists and agnostics, and by the way, he's, he was one of those individuals. In fact, he was amazed at the results of his study. He said, this shows us that religion is not just to make you feel better and to control the nerves of the people. It actually can have some practical applications in helping with the psychological good life, which he equates self-control with the psychological good life because so much... You know, with all the studies done on self-control, the more self-control you have, the better relationships you have, the better um, savings you have, the better family um, you have. It just goes down the line in so many ways, and they call it now the psychological good life. So whenever you hear of self-control, the consequences are the psychological good life. But they're saying they don't know how to get people there necessarily, but he had a group of atheists read and then swear on a Bible after reading the Ten Commandments, and they took a test that were his high likelihood of cheating, and none of them cheated. But then they were asked to quote the top ten books that they enjoyed reading, and then take the test, and there was widespread cheating. And he had control groups and things like that. So bright lines help rediscovering the greatest human strength, Will uh, Baumeister. And then other studies of assistance. Worthy goals, looking towards the future is a great attribute for developing self-control. And by the way, in the name of most of you sitting here today, the denomination that you were baptized into, there's a word in that denomination that actually looks to the future in a positive way. What is it? Adventist. It's called the blessed hope. So in reality, Adventists out of all people, according to the research, should have more self-control if they are truly living by their name. Enhancing the frontal lobe helps out. And of course, we utilize music therapy. There's music that will decrease your self-control and there's music that will enhance self-control. And the music that enhances self-control is not the syncopated rock and roll rhythms that become popular in many churches throughout the land. It's actually melodious music where the rhythm is subdued. It improves self-control. Slowing down the limbic system in overdrive. That means getting rid of music like that. Entertainment, TV, movies will speed up the limbic system. But now I'm going to have you see the fail-safe solution to comprehensive self-control. And the reason why we use comprehensive is because everybody has selective self-control. You know, we'll have people come to our depression and anxiety recovery program, and they admit they don't have self-control. And they'll say, I have no self-control. And after looking at them and seeing them and getting to know them, I realize they actually do have self-control in certain areas. For some, it might be the control that they have to take their Xanax on time. They're not lacking in self-control with that. <laughs> or, you know, there's going to be other uh, types of things that they're going to have some self-control on. I give the example of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Does it take meticulous self-control to build the muscles that Arnold built? meticulous self-control and persistence. But in an area where it was more important for him to have self-control when his maid was cleaning the house, he lacked it. And he lost the love of his life due to not having what type of self-control? Comprehensive self-control. And so what we're after 
is not just selective self-control. In order to have a transformed psychological good life, you have to get to comprehensive self-control. Here's what we're told. What young men and women need is Christian heroism. To rule the spirit means to keep what under discipline? Self under discipline. And now she gives us a secret. God's abounding love and presence in the heart will do what? will give the power of self-control and will mold and fashion the mind and character. The grace of Christ in the life will direct the aims and purposes and capabilities in the channels that will give moral and spiritual power. Power which the youth will not have to leave in this world, but which they can carry with them into the future life and retain through the eternal ages. So it's called self-control, but where do we get comprehensive self-control from? It's outside of ourselves. It's God's abounding love and presence in the heart that gives the power of self-control. She says, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have what one to another? Love one to another. If we would be true lights in the world, we must manifest the loving, compassionate spirit of Christ. To love as Christ loved means that we must do what? Practice self-control. It means that we must show unselfishness at all times and in all places. So the key to self-control is self-sacrifice. And it's actually self-sacrificing love. It's a love that comes from outside of us that human nature totally lacks. And this is why in our program our long-term results are directly related to whether they had a conversion experience in the program. And I can tell you that so many individuals go through that conversion experience. It's a little bit of a process. Don McIntosh, who loves evangelism and was director of evangelism at Amazing Facts for years, says that this 10-day program is evangelism on steroids. Because you take people who would never go to an evangelistic meeting they have all sorts of issues. They might have addictions. They might have relationship issues. They might be homosexual. They might be cutting. They might be in and out of mental health institutions. And with the improvement in brain chemistry that starts to occur with their diet, that's another reason why we get better success than the community program is because we're controlling their diet, what they're putting into their body. We're controlling their music. They're not listening to any music that's not permitted by the uh, program. We're controlling their form of entertainment. And then by day six of the program, we have a burning where they get rid of the things in the past that they see have harmed them. And what an emotional event it is when they put those things into the fire. And many of them, in our last um, program, we did something different in that burning. I think we're going to do it, you know, we keep learning ourselves. But we just asked at that time how many were willing to give their life completely over to the Lord at the end of the burning as we were, and the tears coming down their faces told us the story in their voices of how they were going to give their life over to the Lord. 
And those last four days are joyous as they get those last, you know, they still have improvement to go, but now the things in the past, they have completely changed. And now they're experiencing the grace of Christ in the life. So the key to self-control is self-sacrifice, self-sacrificing love. True transformative healing is dependent on it. Love can change you and it can change the world. Not erotic love, romantic love, or even brotherly love. It's a love that human nature totally lacks. It must come from outside of us. The medical literature calls it altruistic love. I just have a few closing slides. I just noticed the time. It means that we must scatter around us kind words and what else? Pleasant looks. These cost the giver nothing, but they leave behind a precious fragrance. Their influence for good cannot be estimated. Not only the receiver, but to the giver they are a blessing. For they react upon him. And now notice this phrase. Genuine love is a precious attribute of what? Heavenly origin, which increases in fragrance in what? In proportion as it is what? Dispensed to others. And so not only can we get this love, by putting all on the altar of sacrifice lay, but we can continue to get more and more and more of it by how? Dispensing it to others. And that's another beauty of medical missionary work. When you get the opportunity to medical missionary work, you get the opportunity to dispense a lot of love to others. The souls be purified and noble made fit for the heavenly courts. There's two lessons to be learned. She makes it clear these two lessons will be in everyone that makes it eternally. Self-sacrifice and self-control. And that's why the health message is so crucially important. For physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health to be comprehensive and lifelong, it demands the true gospel to be complete. And now this sobering statement, strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the iniquitous life of the abandoned sinner, the degraded outcast, as bad as that is, it is a life which otherwise appears virtuous, honorable, and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. Why is that the case? That's a person that has selective self-control, but how much better they would have been with comprehensive self-control, and they would have been transformative, like Paul or Daniel or whatever. They'll pass to their grave thought of as a pretty good person, but not a great person. But they could have been great. Greatness it is at all of our fingertips. And so I encourage each one of you, choose comprehensive self-control. There's no downside. The medical literature is clear. Choose real self-sacrifice. Give yourself to God. And then choose to do medical missionary work in your community. I would encourage you with the results that are there, learn to put on these programs in your church, whether it's reversing diabetes or, or depression and anxiety recovery. Now with all the studies out there, it's very clear the, uh, the benefit. And then choose to support institutions where genuine medical missionary work is being taught to students and models. I don't know of any other better way of hastening the work than putting your money in a place that is modeling and teaching medical missionary work because this is the missing element. It's not that, you know, the Pope hasn't come to the United States yet in September that we're waiting on. We have always been waiting on God's people since at least the late 1800s. That could have happened a long time ago. We're waiting on God's people to take hold of the threefold ministry. But yet the solution to this, Paul gave it to us. He said what? 
I die daily. And Weimar Institute, that's the reason why I've sacrificed to go to Weimar. People need the health message to feel the need of the true gospel to fully incorporate it in their life. They need the message of health and the gospel to be truly healed. The beauty of medical missionary work is that they will not just be healed now. The beauty of it isn't all those healed people that you saw of those thousands of studies, thousands of patients in those studies. And by the way, that's getting a lot of press, just the thousands of individuals. An antidepressant is released after three or 400 people have taken it. This is thousands of individuals that have gone through the program. But the beauty is not that they're healed now, but when they take hold of the power of the gospel with comprehensive self-control, they're healed for eternity. And that's why Ellen White said, the light God has given on health reform is for what? Our salvation. Why is it for our salvation? If you know of something in your life that is unhealthy and you're still doing it, red flag, self is there. And self-sacrifice needs to happen. It's not a problem with God. God has all the power to give to you through his love. It's a power of your selfishness getting in the way of God giving you that comprehensive self-control. And so... This is the beauty of the health message. In fact, a lot of times there's the rules. In fact, I saw one today. I was just interested in it as an employer. 35 rules to follow to be an employee that your boss can't do without. And I looked at those 35 rules and I thought, those rules are pretty well impossible for one person to follow all 35 of them. And, you know, when someone comes to our program and they see all these different things that they need to do, it can look like, that's pretty impossible. But you know what? It's very possible with God's love in your heart. We can have that comprehensive self-control. And so this is, a, this is a red flag for pastors. It's a red flag for laymen. The light God has given on health reform is for what? Our salvation. But it's not just for our salvation. It's for what? The salvation of the world. The world is hungering and thirsting on how to get self-control. They don't know how to get it. They know it's a major problem for them, but they don't know how to get it. And they will have to come to your local church putting on this program, and then it will click. Comprehensive self-control is obtained through the power of the gospel, and I just need to give myself to God. And this is how this great multitude is going to come in. So I'll close with this last words of Paul. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love, which he meant, that it was the Greek agape love, that self-sacrificing agape love. And what else? Self-control. Medical missionary work must go forward. Let's not be ridiculing the health message or those type of things, or belittling the fact that health, so many people try to separate health from the gospel and say it has nothing to do with our work. No, it has everything to do with it. In fact, we're told that it's the third angel's message in verity. That's how important it is. And once we recognize the importance of it, let's carry it forward. The Lord will bless us and will give us a power to be reformers. All right, let's bow our heads as we close. Father in heaven, we 
Thank you for your healing ministry that can transform lives. And now, Lord, I would like, while every head is bowed and every eye closed, there are those here that have recognized they haven't had comprehensive self-control. They've had selective but not comprehensive. They've been doing things that harm themselves, and they've been not doing things that are healthy for them. And maybe they've seen in a newer light today how the issue has been them. The issue has been the unwillingness to put all on the altar of sacrifice laid and to open our heart to your abounding love and presence that you would love to extol in each heart here today. And as a result of this talk, they want to make a commitment, a change, and be transformed themselves in putting all on the altar of sacrifice laid. If you're in that um, position today where that is your desire, raise your hand at this time to the Lord. Father in heaven, you see the hands that are raised. We see the commitments that have been made. And Lord, we now pray for your spirit to seal that commitment, that you would instill them with your abounding presence and love in the heart. Not only so that they might have the psychological good life, the consequences that come from having high self-control, but that they can also dispense that love to others through medical missionary work and be a transformative agent to change the lives around them. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.